Good morning, and welcome to a brand new episode of Riddles in the Dark, brought to you by the Mythgard Institute. I'm your co-host, Dave Kale, and I'm super excited to introduce you to an episode where we will be talking about the centerpiece of all the Hobbit films, of course. No, not dwarves, elves. That's After all, that's uh, what Empire Magazine and uh, the various... Uh, uh, news journal and uh, news journals and uh, venues said the second film was about. It was all about elves, and of course, given the amount of screen time that Legolas had, that seemed to be the case. We all thought that these movies were about dwarves, but no, in fact, they're about <laughs> Legolas and the elves. So today we're going to be talking about elves, 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 and more elves, um, and especially everyone's favorite pretty boy, uh, beautiful brow elf, Randuil. And so, uh, let's stop screwing around and end this painfully long introduction. Uh, I'm Dave Kale, as I said, and with me, as always, are two of the most insightful, most uh, enjoyable and enthusiastic in the morning um, Tolkien podcasters on the internet, the Tolkien professor, Corey Olson, and Trish Lambert. I'm just... I'm just standing outside Corey's spotlight, just <laughs> oh, on the please. edge of the umbra there. <laughs> <laughs> right, as, and as David Mosley adds, with the best listeners, too, of course. Absolutely. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, yeah, okay, yeah, welcome. Yeah, I so some other people, too. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to just start off giving a little bit of background um, to, I mean, again, it's one of the things that, um, you know, has always been the primary focus of our Riddles in the Dark discussions is really sort of looking at the the challenges for adaptation uh, in the books and really ca- trying to review what the book uh, actually says, no, but and not only the published Hobbit but the rest of Tolkien's writings as well to give a kind of grounding of what you know the Peter Jackson team has to work with and the the the, the kind of as I say challenges that confront them. So. Um, I wanted to begin with that, especially since um, in the Mythgard Academy class, the open class that I've been teaching now for the last couple months, um, we've been going through Unfinished Tales, and we're in the middle of the Third Age section of Unfinished Tales right now. And just in the last couple weeks, I uh, last week, I was looking at the discussion of Thranduil, one of the only places, uh, in fact, the only place that I recall, that Tolkien goes back and tells us some of Thranduil's backstory, um, tells us some of the things... That ha- uh, uh, it's actually yes, yes. It's at the very, very end. It's, it's in one of the appendices of the Galadriel chapter, uh, at the end of part two well, of Unfinished Tales. He, he got into an appendix. He got into a, <laughs> like the butt end of an appendix in a chapter on Galadriel. So there you go. Like an afterthought. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But anyway, so right, I, can, I, can I just say sure. I, that that um, that session uh, on Galadriel, your your Galadriel meta history session. I think, actually, I would say this of, of several of the Unfinished Tales classes that you've done over the last few weeks have been some of my favorite uh, Corey Olson podcasts in, like, a long time, maybe forever. The, wow. The, the, yeah, the Aldarian and Arendis uh, thing. I actually listened to that one multiple times just because I, I, I just thought it was so, it was so good. Um, and and then the Gladriel meta history stuff is just fantastic. You're you're really killing it recently, man. Hey, I appreciate it. Thank you. It's been a lot. Of, that that class has been so much fun. I've been. Uh, I I kind of thought when you know when the our my 
the Council of the Wise and the uh, the the Democratic voters selected Unfinished Tales. I kind of thought it sounded like a good idea, but it has been like way more fun even than I thought. And I have yeah. uh, it's it's been it's I've I've learned so much uh, as I usually do when I go through and teach this stuff. Um, I've never really looked at Unfinished Tales as carefully as I'm doing now, uh, and uh, it's it's been it's been. I, I, Don't you think uh, he's been killing awesome. it, Trish? Oh, absolutely. Well, he, yeah, he actually even killed my thesis. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Trish, I think, has mixed feelings about this. Uh. No, it's okay. I, I can let everybody know my, my thesis, and Corey and I had talked about this, was to, was to like, look at the evolution of Galadriel as, you know, through the years as he was, you know, as his own life proceeded and his daughter grew up and, you know, the women in his uh, professional life, you know, that he mentored and whatnot and the publishing house and whatnot, you know, and what impact that might have. <laughs> I'm listening to the Unfinished Tales thing and, and it, I mean, I guess Corey hadn't really thought of it either. I mean, we're sitting there and Corey goes, well, actually, you know, he really only wrote the Galadriel story after he'd written Lord of the Rings. And I went, oh. Well, okay, that blows that piece of idea. Yeah. I, oh, so you were thinking you were thinking that you were thinking. Oh, here we go off on a long, long. Uh, yeah, uh, I know, I know. Uh, detour, but still, uh, you were thinking that he. You were, but you still have like you still have a um, a uh, why shoot. What's the word that Gandalf uses in the Council of Elrond to describe a long period of time? Like, it's like a wide. Crap, I can't remember. But you still have a, a, a nice. You still have a nice wide window of time over which Galadriel well, evolves following Lord of the Rings, don't you? It's true. Only the thing I was going to do was sort of like look to see was there any impact. Say, for example, Priscilla as a child with all the brothers that she uh, had, and the way he described. You know, and yeah, he may have had like he may have had like vague recollections of that in the 1950s. But I told Corey, I said it would be too much crit fic. I would have to do too much fic to make that to try to make a connection and it just scholastically and academically I couldn't bring myself to do that and I mean Corey did come up with some other some other suggestions you know but I'm like no you know I just don't have the fire for that and to do this kind of a thing you got to really keep your you know you yeah. got to have the passion you, for it. so you, I do have another just, topic which I will keep which I will keep why don't you just quiet. dig really really deep and uh, draw some really really tenuous conclusions look at some of the, <laughs> the female elf characters that he writes <laughs> pre Lord of the Rings and like draw some really really weak well that's um, kind uh, that's inferences and... well the weak inferences part wasn't but that was kind of what Corey was suggesting to yeah you. Um, it, is, it is possible you know because you, you could easily go to you know draw some kind of uh, some kind of continuity between Luthien and Melian in the early stages and, right. you know then right. and sort of Goadriel as right. the inheritor of that thread in more than one way uh, well and there are know, themes you know I think I mentioned to you Corey, at one point, there's the theme of restlessness, which is like mm-hmm. Arathel mm-hmm. and Galadriel. You know, it, yes. I mean, there, there's, you know, this, there's like some some characteristics that could share. But anyway, so yeah. What, I mean, we're kind of talking about elves, but not really elves with regard to <laughs> Right, so, right. However, I mean, yes. I love. I could do the Trish show forever, but I don't <laughs> think. That's what we're doing. Yeah, well, so. It, I, it, Thranduil, as I said, I'd like to start before we get to some of the unfinished tale stuff because I was in that um, in my well, I didn't cover Thranduil in the Galadriel class. I went back to it in my bonus session last week. Um, but when I was covering that, I was making a bunch of very thinly veiled references to the films. But I wanted to save it for today because uh, I knew we were going to be talking about this soon. Um, yeah, so yeah, very thinly veiled. Very, very thinly veiled. <laughs> so I want, <laughs> I want to I want to come back to those. Um, however. Um, yes, Kate, exactly. I want to talk about the facial scars. So, um, 
but but first we need to remember where this all comes from, and that is to say from from the published Hobbit. And there's a wide space of, there's a wide gap in time. I, I want to talk about the backstory of Thranduil that we get in, un, in, in, in Unfinished Tales, but, you know, there's several decades between that and the published Hobbit. So, going back to the published Hobbit, it's important for us to remember that the Wood Elves in the Hobbit you know, in some ways don't exactly fit in the schema. What we what we naturally want to do, and, you know, we've already talked about this some on this podcast, the way in which, you know, Peter Jackson did what surprised me and invoked the whole Sindar-Sylvan class divide within Mirkwood and everything, and that's all there in Tolkien, and it's led us at various points to talk about the, you know, the you know the differences between the Sindar and the Sylvan elves, and, and uh, you know, that, that, that reference, um, you know, by Toriel has kind of brought the uh, uh, you know the whole of the genealogical division of the elves uh, kind of back into a, a good deal of discussion recently, and that's great. But to some extent, that's not the primary text. I mean, of course, it's relevant; it's in the background. But in the published Hobbit, it's still in the background. And um, and what what we get of the Wood Elves, on the one hand, Tolkien explicitly connects the Wood Elves in Mirkwood to the basic elven structure of his uh, of his mythology, you know, of his legendarium, in that famous passage, that famous paragraph in chapter 8 of The Hobbit, which describes, you know, the three different uh, kindreds of the elves, the, the light elves and the deep elves and the sea elves, um, and that the wood elves were related, you know, were, were, were those that did not go to fairy in the West. And, you know, anybody who knows the Silmarillion stuff, which, remember, was... Nobody, almost nobody on earth, like five people or fewer at the time that the pub that the Hobbit was published. Uh, but anyway, um, for those of us who do know the Silmarillion, we all recognize that. But I, I you know, I, I urge great caution here, as I do in all of the Silmarillion references in the Hobbit. I think the evidence in the text of the Hobbit is that he's not he's not connecting this explicitly with the Legendarium. Rather, he is recycling ideas from the Legendarium and incorporating them into the Hobbit. This is why we get, you know, the sort of pseudo-Silmaril at the end in the Arkenstone. Um, and why the question that I get asked so often is the Arkenstone a Silmaril is so bloody complicated to answer, because you know, it, the answer is yes and no. I guess I, I just give an elven answer, right? I will say both no and yes. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, so the, the 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 wood elves and their history, in part, is something that he's incorporating from the Silmarillion that he's recycling from the the Silmarillion tradition. Also, if you pay close attention to the description of the bad blood that exists between the wood elves and the dwarves. Um, it sounds like again. It's you know people who know the Silmarillion will recognize references to the fall of Doriath and uh, and and the you know the 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 misunderstanding between um, between Thingol and the dwarves of Nogrod. But that is also again, if you actually pay attention closely to the details of what is described in the Hobbit, it's not the same. It doesn't actually. It's not precisely the same story even of what was in Tolkien's writings at that time, not just, not only is it different from the published Silmarillion, which we would expect, but it's different from the story as he had just written it the year before he wrote The Hobbit. Um, so again, it's not simply that he's connecting it to those same stories. So, my point is, 
The Wood Elves in The Published Hobbit, it's not enough just for us to go back to the Silmarillion. It's not enough just to go back to that material and say, okay, let's remind ourselves about the elves in the Silmarillion, and this is what Tolkien is is putting into The Hobbit. It's not exactly what he's putting into The Hobbit, because in fact, mingled with the, that those recycled ideas from his uh, his legendarium, from the Silmarillion material, mixed in with those it are... More just sort of folktale references, you know, things which are are associated you know, concepts and motifs that are associated with fairies and with fairy, in you know, in many traditional, uh, in many traditional stories and many traditional fairy tales, um, and so that's that's uh, you know, like I, I'm thinking here of, for instance, the uh, the whole experience at the bridge. Uh, or at the at the non bridge at the river that they have to cross and the whole it, it appears to be elven enchantment that Bomber falls under when he goes into the river but so I mean that that sequence that there is a magic river that has to be crossed but there's a taboo on it you can't not only can you not drink it you can't touch it or you'll fall under an enchantment and the enchantment that you fall under is an enchanted sleep and in your enchanted sleep you seem to be brought into contact with the elves it's like being taken by the elves as happens very frequently uh, in, in the fairy tale tradition that someone is sort of abducted or captured by the elves. Um, Bomber isn't physically captured, but he is put into this sleep, and in his sleep, he has all these dreams about the elves, dreams which, in fact, turn out to be true, um, that to be directly predictive of the elves that they're about to meet. Um, so in Bomber some sense... the prophet. Yeah, yes, uh, he is technically, according to the terms of uh, medieval definitions, he is having a visio of the elves. Uh, that is a prophetic dream which comes true right away as soon as you wake up. Um, that's not instantly in Bomber's case, but I'd still call it a Vizio anyway. Uh, so, uh, anyway, so, sorry, I've been teaching my Chaucer dream vision classes, so I've been, we've been talking a lot about <laughs> dream vision categories, so, uh, so, so sorry, I have Macrobius, uh, uh, and his commentary on the dream of Scipio on my mind. Uh, but anyway, um, uh, I, so uh, some of those things, I mean, it, the, the enchanted river and the enchanted sleep that Bomber falls into, I would point to as one of the elements which is most alien to elves as they're depicted everywhere else in Tolkien's legendarium, but quite familiar to people who read fairy uh, tales or traditional fairy stories. Another element, which I would also put up there, is the whole fairy circle thing, the circle of fairy feasters which, when a mortal stumbles into it, suddenly vanish and possibly abduct the person who who burst in the mortal who burst into their midst. That is a very old idea about fairies, that you can find fairy rings in the forest and you might, as a mortal, come upon the edge of a clearing and find mortals dancing in a ring as Smith does in Smith of Wooten Major, or you might, uh, uh, you know, you, you might find them, you know, celebrating and feasting like this. But if you just blunder in without an invitation, um, then at the least they're going to vanish. At the worst, they're going to take you with them, um, and good things might not happen to you. Good things might happen to you, but probably not. Um, and um, as of course happens to Thorin in the book. So, so again, you know. In, in many ways, the Wood Elves, as Tolkien depicted them in The Hobbit, don't really fit into the concept of elves as we have come to know them through The Lord of the Rings, primarily, and through the Silmarillion, secondarily. And I would uh, ask you to remember as well that in his initial drafts of The Hobbit, this was changed before the first edition, um, but in his when he wrote out 
The Hobbit in its first draft, he used the word fairy quite, uh, not quite frequently, but he did use it quite a lot, and he used it interchangeably with the word elf. Um, that's very much how Tolkien was thinking about them. Um, so, anyway. Can, can I, yeah, can yeah, I go actually ahead. make a point here that sure. Faye actually brought this up in the questions, and I realize there may be others that, that this... I think it's important for us to remember, and it took me a while, actually Corey was the one kind of introduced this to me, the Silmarillion, as, as it's published, is not the way Tolkien wrote it. What I mean by that is, he kind of wrote the Silmarillion in pieces throughout his entire lifetime. Yes. And the book that's published is what Christopher, his son, chose from his larger, huge number of papers to publish, right? Yeah, so, well, it, it was tricky because basically there were sort of two different impulses that Tolkien had. One was to write a kind of a chronicle, um, you know, to, to, to write it basically in the form that the published Silmarillion is is in, you know, the kind of overview of the history. Um, but that's... Uh, that's not the only model that he used. One of the mo- one of the primary ones was Trish, as you say, just him writing a bunch of different stories. Um, it started off as a collection of stories within a frame um, in the Book of Lost Tales. Then he took some of those p- stories and really dug into them, and so you know started to develop them and, and write full length versions of them in poetic form uh, in the the alliterative Children of Hurin and in the the uh, the the rhyming couplet Lay of Lathian. Um, the Baron and Luthien story, um, and he wanted he you know he he seemed to have plans to do others in this way. He did go back. Um, um, uh, Faye, the the text I'm primarily talking about when I'm talking about sort of being contemporary with the Hobbit, the Book of Lost Tales were written in the teens, um, right up leading up to about 1920. Then in the 20s was when he was spending most of his time writing uh, writing poetry. Primarily, most of these things didn't get put into prose uh, during the 20s, but right at the end. He did um, uh, what what he called a sketch of the mythology. He wanted to he wanted to give an overview to somebody, and then he kind of expanded that overview into what he called the Quinta Silmarillion, um, and that was the first Silmarillion model historical overview of the entire uh, mythology, um, and that was written in 1930. Um, so that that first overview that he did, um, incorporating a lot of the stuff, but altering a lot of the things from uh, from the um, the unfinished or the the Book of Lost Tales period, um, and uh, anyway, so that that that's the stuff. If you want to see like where the Silmarillion stood in Tolkien's mind at the time of the Hobbit, um, look in Volume Four of the History of Middle Earth series. It's called The Shaping of Middle-Earth. That's where you can find the sketch of the mythology and what's called the 1930 Quenta. Um, it's the Quenta Silmarillion he wrote in 1930. That's the same year he wrote The Hobbit. So that is like what is exactly contemporaneous with uh, with The Hobbit. Is as far as he was he was quite possibly working on the two of them together, or even possibly writing some of that Quenta material after he'd written The Hobbit. Um, so so you can see uh, uh, exactly where the state of his thoughts were. So basically, just to kind of finish the Silmarillion story, at the end, um, he went back and revised a lot of this stuff. When Christopher went to publish it, he had a couple of choices. Um, you know, uh, he, 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 all of this material he could have tried to put out in a couple different ways. In the end, he decided to do the, the basically the Quenta model um, to produce the, the that sort of Quenta Silmarillion overview, which Tolkien had come back and revised again later on. Um, but um, 
Uh, yeah, so, yeah. And I, I think the way I tend to think of it generally myself is The Hobbit had a definite beginning, middle, and an end. <laughs> In terms of the writing process. Yes. The Silmarillion, not so much. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Um, uh, yeah, no, it's it's um, it's quite a long and tortuous process uh, of uh, just basically of Tolkien developing his own ideas and, and really sort of trying different totally different literary models and uh and I mean, essentially this was him um embodying these stories that he loved and thought about and worked on throughout his life you know just in 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 different ways at different times and anyway so that's 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 sort of that material but again the point is that you can't just equate the silmarillion stuff with the hobbit um now, when he goes back, he's got to recontextualize things, and the Wood Elves are one of those people, you know, one of those one of those areas in the Hobbit that need most recontextualization. Some things in the Hobbit that don't quite fit can just be dropped or downplayed, as for instance, the stone giants who disappear completely or almost completely, and the trolls who don't disappear, but get shoved aside. Like, don't expect, you know, we, we get that wonderful passage that I love so much at the beginning of the, I think it's at the beginning of chapter two um, of the Hobbit, of the Fellowship of the Ring, where we get that, that passage that basically says, don't expect trolls to be, you know, like Cockney and comical uh, now, if you meet them now. Um, you know, so trolls are no longer dull-witted um, you know, but now they are like cruel and terrible and awful. Um, so, you know, so, so some of those things which no longer really fit into the world as he's envisioning it uh, by the Lord of the Rings, he could get rid of. The elves, of course, obviously he could not. And in writing the Lord of the Rings, he has by that time now made the firm decision, which does not seem to have been made when he was writing The Hobbit that he's going to include this story. This story is going to be part of the Legendarium. It's going to be connected, um, actually historically connected with the Silmarillion material. Therefore, he's got to change uh, the Wood Elves. He needs to fit the Wood Elves retroactively into his schema. So what he does is he has, he says that the Wood Elves are Sylvan Elves. This he already had, right? He already had connected them this way and that recycled bit from the Silmarillion that I mentioned before, that they are some of those elves that never went to fairy uh, in the West, who never crossed to Valinor to use the Silmarillion vocabulary. Now the Wood Elves in particular you know, there's 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 uh, there's there's dark elves, and then there's dark elves. Um, you know, you've got the Sindar who went over into Beleriand and fought with the Noldor and against Morgoth, and you've got you know the people of Thingol um, in Doriath. They are the Grey Elves. They are the Sindar. The Sylvan Elves, the Elves of Mirkwood, almost all of the Elves of Mirkwood are elves that never even went to Beleriand. They they don't even figure in the plot of the Silmarillion at all. They take no part in any of the actions and by and large know nothing about anything that occurred in the First Age in the Silmarillion because they were hanging out exactly where they still are in the Lord of the Rings. They were hanging out in Greenwood. They, the elves came from the east and traveled to the west. Some of them got as far as that and decided not to cross the Misty Mountains. And so to stay there in in Ravanian, to stay there on the you know on the east side of the Misty Mountains. And when everybody came back from Beleriand after the end of the first age, you know, when Galadriel crosses over and uh and uh, and, and the Numenorians return, there are these elves still there, having been living peacefully in the Greenwood for millennia. 
That's who the Sylvan Elves are. But that's not who Thranduil is. Thranduil is one of the Sindar who comes back, presumably, uh, from Beleriand. Um, uh, so he, uh, he, he and his dad, um, uh, Thranduil, was not the king of Mirkwood uh, all the way through. Anyway, th- th- there, are, there, there are several examples of Noldor or Sindar uh, coming back from Beleriand, going in amongst the Sylvan Elves, and being sort of accepted among them. Um, and um, that's um, that's what happens with Thranduil and his father and with his son, Legolas, and that's what happens with Kele- with uh, Celeborn. Um, and Goadru, of course, is a Noldor and not a Sindar, but, um, but that's how we get to where we are. Now, when Tolkien is explaining um, sort of the backstory of Thranduil... Um, you know where he where he um, where he has been, and uh, where he uh, sort of what his outlook is. Thranduil became king when his father was killed at the Battle of the Last Alliance. Thranduil was personally at the Battle of Dagorlad. We are told. But not only was he at the Battle of Dagorlad, it was a really bad experience for him. Um, he. Uh, um, uh, he very much didn't enjoy himself. We're told that the elves of Mirkwood went to the Battle of the Last Alliance. They answered the call of Gilgalad. Um, but uh, see, I'm pulling up my PowerPoint here, which has my uh, yeah. So I might as well look at some of the, the, these Thranduil passage that we're talking about here. Um, the elves of Mirkwood answer the call of um, of Gilgalad, but they went ill-equipped. Um, they didn't have much armor. Um, they were not battle disciplined. You know, they were just wild elves, and they got slaughtered uh, in the Battle of Dagorlad. Um, Thranduil survived and went home, but he went home with a small remnant of the people that he brought, um, and he was scarred by the experience. We were told this is the one passage I talked about in class. There was in Thranduil's heart a still deeper shadow. He had seen the horror of Mordor and could not forget it. If ever he looked south, its memory dimmed the light of the sun. And though he knew that it was now broken and deserted and under the vigilance of the kings of men, fear spoke in his heart that it was not conquered forever. It would arise again. Um, I think. Uh, basically, you know, when I was looking at this passage, when I reread that passage again in preparation for this class, I'm sitting there, I'm like, I think there is about a 2% chance that this passage was not in Philippa Boyens' head when they were planning Thranduil uh, in The Desolation of Smaug. Um, That seems too high. That seems too (laughs) high, yeah. Well, I think so. I mean, it it is clear, I mean, Thranduil... that scene, the scene with the you know the captive orc that gets interrogated and then decapitated dishonorably, um, is is shows that he is you know he's already shown his physical scars to Thorin or whatever that is. Um, he is 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 manifestly showing his psychological scars in that scene. Um, that he is obviously terrified, um, horrified at the at the arising again of Sauron now. The only other interpretation of that passage that I that even makes a small bit of sense 
Um, Not that I am hoping for this or think that this is likely, but the only other explanation I can think of for Thranduil's behavior in that scene is if he, if they're going to actually depict him as corrupted, you know, if he's going to be like a secret ally of Sauron's or something and is trying to shut the orc up. Um, I, I think that's deeply unlikely, but it's literally the only other explanation I can think of for why they would for why they would have him act that way. But this um, this concept of him as uh, th- this this exp- this would explain why he's an isolationist, why he believes in just sticking within their borders, because he because he you know he remembers what happened the last time he went out of his borders, the last time he marched his you know uh, here's Toriel, easy for her to say, hey, let's you know let's. Let's hat up and go fight the spiders. Let's let's trace them to their source. Let's take the battle to the enemy. And there's Thranduil saying, dude, you have no idea what it was like when we took the battle to the enemy last time. Um, I remember, and I am not going there again. Um, that, to me, uh, this, this it's, so, you know, it, it may be, this is not what's in their heads. It may be that this is not, in fact, how things work out in film three. But thinking of film two alone, this paragraph made more sense to me of the the depiction of Thranduil in the Desolation of Smaug um, than any other that I have uh, that I have seen or 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 heard about. Um, so I and to me it's it's fa- because Thranduil is a jerk. You know, one other thing about that moment in the Desolation of Smaug, uh, uh, Alyssa House Thomas sent me uh, a really good email about this um, in the context of last week's discussion when we were talking about uh, violence. Um, is that, you know, she was saying that that moment when Thranduil decapitates the ca- the captive orc is one of the most um, difficult to sort of reconcile with Tolkien's world that she had had, and I, and I agree with her. Um, Thranduil's casual decapitation of a prisoner, and a prisoner, what's more, whom he has promised to release, um, breaking his word and decapitating the prisoner... Um, that is something that good people, capital G, capital P, as the Wood Elves are supposed to be, do not do in Tolkien's world. That is a violation of the sort of deeper code of Tolkien's world, which is more profound um, than uh, than 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 almost anything else that we see in the film. I agree with that. Hey, he kept the letter of his word. <laughs> well, see, but but Dave, do you remember who else did that? Said yeah, uh, Sauron. Yes, yeah. Sauron to Gorlim the Hapless. Exactly. Right. right. Tell me yeah. what I want, and I will release you. And he and he kills him instead. And how chilling is that parallel? Right. Well, I, I mean, you can see your wife too. again. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, and it maybe. And and uh, and honestly, that. Maybe. Do you think the goblins now refer to that poor goblin as the unhappy? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> poor. What's his name? The the unhappy. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um <laughs> yeah uh but uh but yes i mean that parallel i mean you know you you could push that parallel and say hey maybe like he is going over to the dark side you know maybe that maybe maybe that parallel um is supposed to be evidence that he is in fact turning and becoming evil and we can sort of think about that a little bit more uh going forward i think when we look at what thranduil and the elves are going to be doing in film three but um but anyway, I just think this is important. Thinking about the physical scars for a second, as I said, have, I've said before, and I can't remember exactly when it was, um, you know, we don't really know much about the backstory. The other element, and it's there in The Hobbit, um, 
Thranduil claims to have knowledge of dragons. You know that that he 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 is a wise elf, and so he, um, you know he he knows that Thorin is not really likely to kill the dragon, um, and he reasons that Thorin is either a fraud or uh, or is just planning to steal something. Which the narrator commends. The narrator says, and this shows that he's a wise elf, right? Um, because he does, in fact, know enough about dragons to know that Thorin and company alone have very small chance of actually killing Smaug. Um, so, my guess still about the scars, it's possible, of course, maybe he got the scars in the Battle of Dagorlad, but, you know, I, 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 I think it's possible. And by the way, this it's not like there's a 0% chance that there was a dragon or two involved in that battle. There might well have been. It's conceivable. Um, but uh, but it may also be a separate thing. If you want to connect Thranduil not only with you know sort of his past history in the war, but also if you want to if you if you want to bring Thranduil in to the whole dragon sickness plot, the whole lust for treasure plot. The reference to his desire for those gems suggests that you know that he has already kind of declared himself willing to be unscrupulous uh, and to imprison people who should be his allies and to turn away from people who should be his allies um, for the sake of these gems that he desires and have and are being and have been kept from him. Um, so. Uh, and we know that's the other fact that we're given about the elves and about Thranduil in particular, about the Elven King in particular in the published Hobbit, which is that he has a love for gems. He has a love for, for treasure. He wants to get more treasure and to build a bigger hoard. Um, and I think that he is one of the, he is, I, I would even call him the number two, well, number three if you count the master, I suppose, but um, the, the number two most susceptible to dragon sickness in the Hobbit. The Siege of the Lonely Mountain, the standoff between Thorin and Bard and Thranduil at the gates of the king, um, well, the wall of the king, really, when Thorin rebuilds it, um, is, is you know, to me, it's, it's sort of all about the dragon sickness. You know, that is sort of the outward manifestation of the spirit of Smaug that we saw that he had and that he was attempting to instill in Bilbo. Um, and Thranduil is one of the guilty parties there. Um, and, you know, he, he can say, long shall I tarry ere I begin this war for gold. Um, but that, uh, but, you know, he, he sure didn't tarry very long before he set out with his army to, 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 to go to the mountain. Um, you know, so he's not completely lost to dragon sickness in the book. Um, but he just he, thought it would be more comfortable to tarry at the foot of the mountain. Exactly, right. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. He thought, why, why tarry in the comfort of my beautiful, gorgeous... Um, uh, elven halls with the forests and the and the lovely um, uh, uh, you know guest suites with the locks on the outside of the doors. <laughs> when we could be camped in a in a military encampment um, in the in, in the a, muck in, in the mire of land. Yeah, in, right. the, in the desolation of smog, like that, right. that seems much more. Com- Absolutely. He just likes to travel. He likes staying in hotels. Long shall I, <laughs> long shall I tarry in my heavily uh, entrenched defensive <laughs> positions, investing the mountain ere I begin this war for gold. Um, like he's, he's, you know, he's not entirely single-minded there. Hey guys, Brent Sprinkle and I have come up with a new term. Okay. You know, when you were talking about maybe Thranduil's going over to the dark side, yes. Brent said, as Yoda says, fear leads to the dark side. And uh-huh. I said, oh my gosh, we need to call this CrossFic. CrossFic. <laughs> <laughs> the application of terms and themes from one book from to, the, to, to another, yes, yes, That's from right. one work to another. 
you know, you know. Actually, though, in the world of pod, in the world of Tolkien podcasting, Trish, I think the more appropriate thing to call that is pulling a Father Roderick. <laughs> pulling a Father Roderick, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, anyway, so that's I, I, I might as well show that might as well show my other Thranduil. Oh, and this is about his isolationism specifically. Um, now, remember, this is written after the Lord of the Rings, so we're way we're we're two decades after the Hobbit was published. When a thousand years of the Third Age had passed, and the shadow fell upon Greenwood the Great, the Sylvan Elves ruled by Thranduil retreated before it as it spread ever northward, until at last Thranduil established his realm in the northeast of the forest and delved there a fortress and great halls underground. So notice, this means that his the halls of the Elven King predate the Shadow. Um, that the, the the arise of the Shadow in Mirkwood is what caused him uh, to 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 settle there. Um, so we've got some, you know. Gosh, from, you could say the Elves were in crisis, couldn't you? You know, that does sound a little bit crisis like, <laughs> doesn't it? Anyway. <clears throat> Orifer, that's Thranduil's dad, Orifer was of Sindarin origin, and no doubt Thranduil, his son, was following the example of King Thingol long before in Doriath, though his halls were not to be compared with Menegroth. He had not the arts, nor the wealth, nor the aid of the dwarves, and compared with the elves of Doriath, his sylvan folk were rude and rustic. Orifer had come among them with only a handful of Sindar, and they were soon merged with the Sylvan Elves, adopting their language and taking names of Sylvan form and style. This they did deliberately, for they and other similar adventurers, forgotten in the legends or only briefly named, came from Doriath after its ruin and had no desire to leave Middle-earth, nor to be merged with the other Sindar of Beleriand, dominated by the Noldoran exiles, for whom the folk of Doriath had no great love. They wished indeed to become Sylvan folk and to return, as they said, to the simple life natural to the elves before the invitation the invitation of the Valar had disturbed it. So we have not only a um, a um, him retreating before the shadow and digging his defensive um, but not very sophisticated halls underground in the north of Mirkwood. We also have this general back to the earth movement among the Sylvan among the these these uh loose Sindar who come among the Sylvan elves. So this desire to say you know basically thinking about the arguments that Toriel makes in the film, you know, the like this is our fight argument, the you know it, we should take this fight to the enemy thing. She's talking like an elf of Beleriand. They're like, those are the kinds of arguments they, they, they used in Beleriand. Like, oh, the enemy is here. We should fight him. We should stand up to him or at least hold him in leaguer. And, uh, and the Sylvan elves, by and large, are saying, you know what? Um, no. That didn't work so great. <laughs> What'd you say? I said, that didn't work so That didn't great. work out so great. Exactly. Do you we... remember how that went? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How's that working out for you guys up there? I don't think so. You know, we, we don't want any near knife or noidiad <laughs> around here. So we're going to we're going to be fine. Uh, we, we, we prefer to number our tiers. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, we actually counted those. <laughs> we, we counted them, and we want to still be able to at the end of the day. Um, so, so you know, again, so th- this 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 concept of you know, again, it's something that I think um, a lot of people have a hard time with, like um, w- how Thranduil in the film can appear almost cartoon, like almost like cartoon villainy. You know, like why is he acting like such a you know a snob and such a jerk and um, and and that is 
his isolationism, you know, the whole, like, why would you not go? Remember, people had a hard time with this in the Two Towers film. You know, like, why would Theoden be like, no, let's not fight. Let us run away instead. Um, and everyone's like, Theoden wouldn't say that. Well, you're right. Theoden wouldn't say that. But um, <laughs> but Thranduil might actually say that. Um, there's plenty of precedent um, for elves to basically say it's not our business. You know, I mean, if it doesn't come into our realm, it's not our problem. You know, we are focused on living in this realm and of being at one with this land. And if this land that we have here is not in danger, then, you know, we're not, it's not our problem. And that seems to be, you know, so you combine that with the retreat before the shadow and Thranduil's psychological scars about the shadow rising again and his fear of going out and uh, um, and having to fight the enemy again. Um, it that, that seems to me to give plenty of explanation for why he would take the line that Thranduil in the film did take. So, okay. With that, you know, I'm feeling. I'm actually background. feeling good. I'm feeling good about my property here. For those of you that don't know this, I I started with a 23 acre property about a year ago, and I'm you know, and I've named it after a Quenya name, meaning the renewer. Anyway, I had a pest control guy come out the other day because it's getting warmer, and I'm concerned about you know biota fauna in particular, you know, getting into places I don't want them to get into. And he comes out and he goes. You live in the middle of the forest. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, cool. I'm like a sylvan elf. <laughs> exactly. Are you fighting the long defeat? Trip? She is yes. fighting the long defeat. Yes. The shadow is falling oh, upon Texas, be, and she is retreating into her little have realm. That'll be a blog post for my blog. Yeah, <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, so, okay. So, anyway, sorry. I'll, I'll get rid of this as well. Yeah, isn't, isn't that funny? Um, isn't that funny that... Uh, this is like kind of a, a sort of a meta, a, a meta, a, you know, like I don't want to wade too far in these waters, but isn't that funny that, that people have such a hard time with that, with, with those kinds of non-interventionist character portrayals? I think that's a, I think that's a, 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 a at least amongst American film viewers and readers, that's, there. I think that gets to our core of our, our, our fondness for, you know, foreign interventionism and running around the world. Yes. It it is very interesting. Yeah, the Um, idea that you would just sit around and mind your own business is seems like an evil thing to do. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, By the way, that was was one of my favorite parts of uh, the Aldarian uh, chapter. I thought that was really interesting. Yeah. That, like, bit at the end where he basically just says, well, I have two choices and they both suck. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, and yeah. I think, and, and I think, in this case, you can make the same argument for um, for Thranduil. I, I, I do, you know, I think that the, I, I, I think that I think that that the part of the reason in the film that that our minds rebel against it a little bit is is um, the sense that like. The fact that the fact that he's sitting there saying this, like, look, you know, we can't we can't help the rest of the world. We just got to stay here and defend our own borders. We're not we're not the police of the world. We can't do everything. But it's like, but this isn't about you know trying to help some people on the other part of the world. They, they are literally on your doorstep. Right. Here. Right. Like, <laughs> it seems a little. It seems a little. I, I'm kind of wondering if perhaps in some extended edition we'll get we'll get more details and we'll get a we'll get a fill that. But it seems that I, I increasingly I've. I'm with these films. I'm noticing that 
we should probably, when we see a scene and we're like, well, that didn't make any sense. I don't understand that character, uh, um, yada, yada, yada. There's a very good chance that there's probably something that's been cut that actually puts it into a larger context. Um, yeah. So I'm curious to see what we get. Yeah. And I, ho- and I hope it comes back in the extended edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's this is you know as we continue to hope for our like five and a half hour extended edition of the Desolation <laughs> of Smaug. Um <laughs> But um, thinking thinking forward now uh, to film three, there are two major things that I, two major moments in the plot, and of course you know we can also talk about if there are going to be major elements of the plot that are that you know we're not anticipating just based on what happens in the book but two things which seem inevitable are first the interaction between the wood elves and the lake men after the destruction of lake town and then secondly the standoff the siege of the you know what 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 i'm calling following john ratliff from the history of the hobbit by the way what i am calling the siege of the lonely mountain later on um and his his so the, the partnership between the Elven King and uh, Bard in the book um, and their opposition to Thorin and uh, ultimately to the other dwarves as well. Um, and so thinking about those things, you know, th- th- there may be other factors, you know, there may be whole other plot movements that we're not anticipating in film three, but it seems like those two things have to happen. Um I can't imagine we're not going to get... We know we're going to get the Battle of Five Armies, so I can't imagine... We're, you know, we know that the elves and the humans are going to get there. Um, first of all, do you think there's any chance that we don't get the intervention of the elves with the Lake Men? Like, I mean, theoretically, they could all just arrive separately um, and be having some kind of a complicated three-way standoff or, you know, all uh, arrive separately and they form an alliance there. What do you think? Do, do, you think do you think they're going to meet up at Lake Town? Do you think we're going to get the... Um, you know, the Elven King goes off, but then turns aside to to provide, uh, you know, uh, assistance to the refugees of Lake Town before he goes up to the Lonely Mountain. Or, or, do you think we're going to get that? Uh, that's an interesting idea. How they, what they, might they do with that? Whew. In Man, the book, know. one of the consequences of this is it kind of it it moderates the sort of uh, profiteering um, nature of the elves' mission, you know, um, you know, I mean, they're they're plainly um, they're plainly out to get the treasure uh, of Thror that's lying. They now believe unattended uh, in the Lonely Mountain, but the fact that they're going to turn aside from that to go to help the the the, the Lake Men as soon as they discover that um, that the Lake Men need help. That's a redeeming moment for them, you know, that they are, um, they're obviously good people if they prioritize the lives of these people with whom they don't seem to have any other connection other than the fact that they engage in trade with one another um, (laughs) in the book. Uh, and I don't see any other evidence than that in the film either. Um, but anyway, uh, they, um, uh, you know, so basically there seems to be very small, um, Call. I mean, it's not like the Lake Men are their vassals or something. They don't. They don't seem to have. You know, the, 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 there's no. It's it's pu- it seems to be pure altruism that leads the elves to stop and help the men of Lake Town. Um, and maybe in the movie he comes yeah. to call Tariel to heal. Come on, get away from that dwarf. <laughs> right. Come with me. Right. I mean, it is true that having brought 
Toriel and Legolas to Lake Town in film two, we already have that connection, which provides maybe a tenuous excuse for some elves to go out after. I mean, Legolas went chasing after Toriel. Is somebody going to come chasing after Legolas? Um, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't seem impossible. Um, they knew, the elves knew that an orc band in force was heading to Lake Town. Is it possible that when Thranduil discovers that his son and heir has gone off, um, you know, alone to pursue Toriel towards the place and engage this orc band, um, that he might come with armed assistance to fight what he thinks is probably an orc band in or around Lake Town? I mean, it seems possible that that could be used as an excuse to get Thranduil and an army towards Lake Town. I've got another idea. Legolas shows back up at the halls of the elves and goes, Dad, the orc gave me a bloody nose. <laughs> right. Regal goes, by God, we're going to war. <laughs> That's right. This means war. <laughs> I, think, I, I think actually specifically what they're going to do is first they're going to stop my dull Goldor so, so that uh, Thranduil can talk to Bolg's father. <laughs> That's right. Your son, Your son is a bully. Yes. I can't help but notice that my son received a passing cosmetic inj- injury from uh, one of your people, and I'm going to take that up with you personally because we don't suffer for that kind of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but actually, I mean, I could see a link being made. I mean, here we we've already gotten established the fact that. Thranduil is is materialistic. We've also gotten established the fact clearly that the master is materialistic, and I would think that might end up becoming the basis for an alliance between them. Because mm-hmm. the master is, I, I'm believing, is going to continue to be a figure beyond where he is in the book in movie three. That is one thing that seems almost guaranteed. We'll come back to this in a later episode when we talk about Lake Town politics and right. stuff. But um, but I, yeah, I agree. <clears throat> in the book. The master, after the master manipulates the rest of the people to be angry at the dwarves and get ready to march on the mountain, he vanishes. Um, you know, and it's just bar. It's just the bard show from there on out. It's a little hard to believe that um, that Stephen Fry's you know master is going to do that. Um, right. So you I, know, I don't see him necessarily going to the mountain himself, but I certainly see him like calling the soldiers of Lake Town to go off to the mountain. Right. Right. Yeah. No, I can easily see that. Um, uh, right. But but again, and he's going to be presumably opposing um, Bard. You know, the, so there's probably going to be some still some complexities there. Um, right. You know, the, I assume the relationship between Bard and the Master is not going to be completely ended once Bard uh, escapes from prison, which he's presumably going to do. Um, so. So yeah, I mean, I there's there, but but I I don't want to get too wrapped up in that. But right. just thinking no. about what no. the el- the elves' point of view and um, and what they're doing, um, you know, what they are up to, um, I think it's it is a really interesting question. It's, again, it's an opportunity to show you know perhaps they're they'll do the same thing in the films. Perhaps they will take this as an opportunity to show the elves being kind, the elves being generous. You know, maybe maybe in this way um, they are following in the footsteps essentially of Toriel who went to Lake Town out of compassion and while there ended up healing somebody. That was all that she did. She barely fought. Um, she instead brought healing. Maybe that's what 
maybe that becomes sort of a parallel for oh, what Thranduil will do. Oh, you and your rose-colored glasses. I don't think that's what no. they're going to do. Oh, well. I, bet, I bet you Thranduil goes to Lake Town to, to verify the news that he's received that the dragon is dead. That would probably be the reason he would go. Right, he's got to see it with, a, he, with, with his own eyes. With his he's own not going to believe it yeah. until he sees the steaming corpse of, of Smaug. Of Smaug. And then he's going to, he and the master are going to get into conversation and discover that they have sort of similar interests. And so he decides he's going to use, I mean, he'll never be the peer, you know, he'll never consider the master his peer, but he would go into some will, sort of will alliance. It, uh, to, you know, will it be the master or will it be Bard? I think the master, because the whole deal is going to be let's go to the mountain and, and plunge, you know, plunder the wealth in the mountain. I don't think Bard would. That wouldn't be Bard's thing. That would definitely be the Master's thing. That be a, That would be a pretty a pretty big change from the book. It sure the would. Master is sort of. Is, it sure is would. I, and but, we know I, Jackson I doesn't make big changes from. Yeah. Well. Right. Sure. Yeah. Exactly. That pretty much <laughs> rules that out. However, <laughs> don't forget we're not talking about that today. <laughs> Focus that's on right. the elves. That's right. Focus on the elves. That's right. So I mean, that um, would be my thing. I mean, I just can't imagine Thranduil making that huge of a change in character, especially given the fact that he's going to be going back to his greedy self we assume, later that I think his reason to go to Lake Town would be more self-serving than a Red Cross visit. Uh, yeah, well, possibly. I think, um, I think um, that's interesting because they've, they've set it up with Legolas and, um, and Tariel. Like there, there is sort of there's already sort of been a like, I think uh, uh, they've laid some groundwork for them suggesting an intervention and for them for them specifically suggesting that they stop by Lake Town first because they've already been there they've seen that the town has been attacked by um, goblins. Uh, uh, don't forget also last the uh, the the la- uh, last thing that that Legolas and Toriel knew the dwarves were in Lake Town, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? So it, to you know a natural thing might be to um, head out and go directly to uh, Lake Town to see if there's any dwarves hanging around to try and capture them. What in the book? In the book, he in the book his army the the Elf King's army marches out because they know Smog is dead, right? Yes. Like, I don't think he needs confirmation. He has nope. he has information. He's got, like, you know, he probably talks well, no, to No, the book Elvin King doesn't need that. <laughs> yeah. So I kind of, so, 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 um, I guess, I guess his motivations could be different now because now we have Legolas and um, Tariel writing back to report, hey, there's something really strange going on. Uh, well, we it'll be interesting to see. Tariel might still be in Lake Town too. Oh, that's true. Yeah, good the other, point. The other thing about Legolas and Tariel that we've seen this precedent of them carrying, I I look at that more as that's set up to contrast Thranduil's, uh, you know, personality. That he's the opposite of that. He doesn't want to help. And but Legolas and Tariel, this is the, the beginning of their kind of getting away from him. You know, um, that they're looking at things differently than he does. Yeah. Yeah, um, well, see, and that's 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 one of the things that I find kind of fascinating about um, this. You know, it's one thing that's been in my mind when I've you know been hearing uh, uh, you know Tolkien fans object to the fact that we get Legolas and Toriel in Lake Town in film two. It's well, no, the the elves do go to Lake Town. It's just what we're getting in the film is, you know, an advanced squad. And so the question is, right. what's going to be the relationship between 
that first trip to Lake Town and the second trip to Lake Town. Um, it could be a parallel, as I was suggesting, with my rose-tinted view, or it, or it could be it could be you know an anti-parallel. Um, you know, it could be setting up that kind of uh, you know that kind of disappointment. So. Well, there's also a middle ground. Kim, kind of in her in her her Kim, I hope you're a her. Um, um, comment makes me think too that it, maybe a less nefarious thing is simply, geez, you know, the dragon's dead. I wonder if the dwarves are still alive. Let's go make a you know, let's go make a exploratory just to find out what's going. You know, let's find out what's happening now, right. rather than. You know, I'm going to go get the treasure. I mean, it just, or I'm going to go help Lake Town. It may just simply be, let's go see what's going on. Well, and he's got all those armored elves that are just standing around. So exactly, but don't forget the other factor involved here in the films, which was not at all involved in the book, is that the elves are in crisis. (laughs) 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 That um, that the uh, you know. Thranduil seems pretty worried about the fact that Sauron is coming back. Um, How does that factor in to their plans? Also, keep in mind, the end of film two saw uh, uh, Azog leading an army of orcs out of of Dol Guldur, which I can only assume has to be headed north towards the Lonely Mountain. Um, uh, I mean, I can't imagine that that orc army that we saw isn't the orc army that we're going to meet at the Battle of Five Armies. Um, So, uh, therefore, is it, you know, how is that going to factor in? Is Thranduil going to have any intelligence of that army? Um, is is Because his moves, again, in the book, there's no question of invasion from the south. Um, there's no question. They're not... Um, the elves in... in, in the book are not in a state of crisis. Um, I mean, there are spiders, and they dislike them, but it, they're, they seem to be in a pretty steady state with them. Um, however, we're talking about enemy armies on the move up in the general direction of your home base. I mean, an, an orc army setting off from Dol Guldur coming north could just as well be going to squash the Elf Kingdom as it could be going anywhere else. So, you know, to what extent is that going to factor in? That, to me, is a is a complexity that makes the um, the elves' actions and their sort of movements difficult to predict. That's true. That that could be. It's it's hard. It's hard to imagine that they wouldn't see this giant army marching out of Dol Goldor, which is right around the corner from where they live. Probably the probably the the um, the Dol Goldor army will march right through the line of sight of pointing elves. Yeah, so you'd think. And the, there's, there's no chance that they wouldn't know. Yeah. And yet, and yet um, the Battle of Five Armies, as it's told in the book, the arrival of the Goblin army is supposed to be like this huge, this you, you catastrophic surprise. Right. Or maybe right. just catastrophic surprise. It's kind of both. That, um, that, that you know, ends the infighting and unites the different armies. That That's an interesting point. I wonder... Because that that would really change if he sees the goblin army marching toward the lonely mountain, uh, and then and then he sets out for the lonely mountain. One, that really that could potentially be a huge change in the course of events. Um, it, like, and and in fact, that actually I hadn't even thought about that until now. Now I'm really disturbed. How <laughs> on earth is he going to beat that army to the lonely mountain? Since Azog can cover like three hundred miles an hour, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, and even even with that, even setting aside that that, <laughs> just 
assuming both armies would travel at roughly the same speed, and and assuming they're heading in the same direction, well, I he's think closer he's, to it. I mean, he's closer to the. I guess Roman that's now. true. But you know, it occurs to me actually something that Tom wrote. It, it occurs to me that we may have a parallel Aragorn Helm's Deep moment with Legolas chasing Bolg. Yes. And he may see the army coming and then turn around and hotfoot it back to let his dad and everybody else know that the orcs are coming, the orcs but are coming. Yeah. I just the the but that's that could really change but there will there would basically be no siege of the lonely mountain. If if they're if they're heading there with the foreknowledge that there's a giant goblin army coming that probably will kill all of us if we don't unite and fight them, why on earth would they get there and say, All right, we're gonna surround you and lay siege to you until you uh come out and bring us uh, our treasure. And well, we but Legolas this... may not show up with his Paul Revere warning until after they're already at Erebor and see. Oh, okay. So maybe, so maybe, oh, so I maybe like that. actually Thranduil has already set out and we didn't even know. Yeah, right, right. <clears throat> That's an interesting. I haven't even thought about it till now. Now I'm really. I mean, let's sure. let's think about Dang that it. in days, right? Smaug gets killed. The next day, the elves are in Lake Town. <laughs> the next day after that, they're at Erebor. Right. right. <laughs> so... It's true. Hey. As if it takes a full day, uh, but oh, that's true. Uh, <laughs> I remember the morning he could, they're in Town, the evening they're in Erebor. <laughs> it took it took Azog like three hours to get from Bjorn's house to Dol Guldur. I mean, well, I think think about the dwarves getting to the Lonely Mountain from Lake Town. I mean, what was that? They left in the morning and got there like late. Oh, yeah, afternoon. yeah, exactly. And they and uh, and they got from Bjorn's house all the way across Mirkwood in about right. it, about thirty six hours at most. Um, that's right. So yeah, it's it's not a problem. But anyhow, um, one other thing, Dave, that I would throw into this, though. Um, mm-hmm. Don't forget that the orc army in Dol Guldur was invisible. Uh, that's true. It had been cloaked by uh, by the power of Sauron, and that seems... Of course, Gandalf was, like, busily mucking that up and revealing it, but that might also, perhaps, come into play for the you catastrophic, catastrophic, sudden, unexpected appearance of an orc army at the Lonely Mountain if that same kind of cloaking thing uh, happens with them and they are... So it's possible that, you know... I'd, I'd, uh, I I love the image of Legolas as Paul Revere, by the way. I think that that's just lovely. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, anyhow, so uh, so if if you know he comes galloping up and says they're coming, um, but then they don't see them and they don't know where they are, and then they just now, suddenly appear. That would I don't know. know. Crossfit moment. Are they using Romulan shields? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Clearly not. Clearly not. That's not possible. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, um, Romulans don't share that kind of technology. Yeah, exactly. Please, please. <laughs> um, that's a that's a really interesting point, though. I think because because in the book in the book it's just basically just uh, how do they how are they alerted to the presence of the Goblin Army? It seems like Gandalf sort of already knows or suspects. Yeah, Gandalf says Gandalf does know, but he didn't think they would. They still beat him. You know, he's still uh, yeah. he's still he's still they still come more quickly than but he. I, is expected. It's, in, it's interesting that he doesn't choose to share that information <laughs> right. until it's well, blaze, was, bl- 
He's waiting to pull Until it out of his hand. completely obvious to everyone else. Uh, guys, there's some goblin arms coming. <laughs> right. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah, I was going to tell you that. Right. I have something that I should have probably shared with you a little while back, actually, but I think I'll not and tell you. it looks like you already know. So, uh, well, <laughs> there you go. Right. Yep. No, he, it, it does, it does seem, that does seem to be what Gandalf is, is doing there. But he, he, even in the published Hobbit, he seems to have a, a sort of a flair, um, for, for the dramatic. You know, you think about the, uh, you know the the revelation of the map and key at Bag End, for instance, is sort of another similar moment um, of uh, of you know Gandalf doing that kind of uh, that kind of surprise reveal uh, on everybody. Um, but um, okay, let me uh, let's 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 get to. We should get. Well, do we have to get towards the riddle yet? We're actually doing better for time than I thought. Um, let's uh, let's think a little bit more about the siege, though. Setting aside the the the, the perplexing we, we, goblin we started question. Late, so I'd say another fifty minutes or something. Yeah, no, I'm yeah. I'm watching the time based on the the true time of our recording, oh, okay. not the oh, right, not right, the right. Okay. not the clock time. Um, Got it. Uh, no, we're still okay for a little bit. So let's set aside for a second the question of the possibly invisible and possibly not. Um, possibly Paul Revere warned and possibly not Goblin Army, and just think about the standoff, if we get something like the standoff, which I'll be frankly disappointed if we don't, because the potential for, you know, the the interest of that sort of standoff, the Bard, Thranduil, and Thorin, um, with their standoff at the gates of the mountain, each one of which, um, well, in the book, with the exception of Thranduil, um, but anyway, each one of which has really quite an understandable point of view, and uh, and you can kind of get behind each one of their perspectives. Even Thorin. Thorin goes over the top, um, but still, you can easily see his point. I mean, uh, his the question that he asks to Bard and the Elven King at first when they appear is really an excellent question. Who is this who comes armed as if for war to the gates of the King Under the Mountain? Um uh, you know, it's easy for Bard to say, we're not at war, Thorin, you know, or, you know we're not yet foes. Um, yeah, well then why did you bring a freaking army to my gate? And why are you in- encamped defensively in front of my gate? You know, as if you are besieging me or something. Um, you're not acting like a friend. Why should I assume you are? Um, so, you know, I, I, again, I think although Thorin clearly does lose it, yeah, that's a completely defensible question on his part. And I think his suspicion is quite warranted, um, especially given the understandable unfriendship with which he remembers his treatment on the, at the hands of the Elven King. So anyway, that whole situation in the book is very interesting. The situation as they have complicated it in the film promises to have all kinds of wrinkles which could work out in really interesting ways because that triad of Thorin, Elven King, and Bard is complicated by Toriel and Legolas on Thranduil's side by the Master and the Master's Lackey. What's his name? The Master's um, Lackey? The, Go- Gofrid? The, Alfred. G- Alfred. 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 Right. Yeah. The Grima guy. Anyway. So yeah. So uh, 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 you know. So you've got you've got uh, you know the uh, political complexities on the Lake Town side as well, and then you've got um, uh, you've now got uh, Keeley prominently, but even. Um, even uh, Bofer and uh, Ori and who isn't there another one? Who was there in Lake Town? Bofer, Keeley, Feely. Oh, Feely, of course, stayed with him, right? And Owen, 
Right. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. It's, it's Owen. I said Ori. I meant Owen. Um, yes. So, um, so, you know, you've got, you've got basically, poten- at least potentially, divisions and possibly something like intrigues in each of those three camps. Um, and so, you know, where are the major players going to fall out? And how are these other pieces going to fall, you know, going to fall? Are, are they going to be making, um, you know, deals with each other? And then, of course, into all, um, into all of these policies come Bilbo and the Arkenstone. So, um Oh, and don't forget that uh, there's been definitely in the conversation. Did you say this? I mean, I was writing an answer to somebody, so I'm going to miss. I'm really dumb here. But in his conversation with Thorin, when he had captured him, he's still holding against the fact that they didn't give him his necklace. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, so he, he has his kind of stake in the question has been upped a little bit. Again, in the book, he's just kind of an opportunist. Um, and somebody who is involved in a genuinely humanitarian way uh, with the people of Lake Town. <laughs> so the only the only real excuse, the only defensible excuse for Thranduil to be uh, at the Lonely Mountain at the end is, you know, he's looking out for the interests of his friend Bard of Lake Town. You know, he wants to see help brought to the men of the lake and, and justice done um, for Bard. Um, and I'm sure he's 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 all. Um, um, you know, uh, generous minded about that. But anyhow, um, uh, so, so yes, with the gems and everything, we're already told the personal stake that he has. So notice, um, what they've done is prepared a line for Thranduil, which is parallel to the line that Bard had in the book. Remember, Bard comes to the, to the gates of the Lonely Mountain and says, um, I have several claims here. One, I killed the dragon. Doesn't that, don't I deserve some of his treasure? Like, that's kind of how it works, right? So, um, you know, give me some as the dragon slayer. Um, But also, he says, some of the treasure you have there is mine. You know, Smaug pillaged Dale also. Um, So, and that's not yours. You can't claim the treasure of Dale. The treasure of Dale belongs to Girion and his heirs, and that's me. So you are holding what is rightfully mine. Thorin wouldn't stand for that if the situation were reversed. No question. So Bard has a very legitimate claim. So now notice Thranduil now has a similar claim. You are holding something which is owed to me. Your grandfather owed it to me and, and, and stiffed me for it back then. Um, but now, and so now I still want it. So again, he does have that kind of, uh, that kind of argument, that kind of position. Um, I, I, I think Thrandall's point of view, first of all, one of the things is I do expect that we'll see some kind of a character arc for Thranduil where by the end of the movie, he is more open because then later he sends, you know, two years later, he sends his son to the Council of Elrond. Um, but I think at this stage of the movie and the siege, we are still going to see the aristocratic, I am above, you know, everybody else, Thranduil. Yes. And um, so I think his view, I mean, his viewpoint at the siege is really going to be very haughty and very, um, very dismissive of even the humans that he's quote unquote allied with. I mean, I yes. think he's, he's going to have a really troublesome, troublesome point of view and position there. Yep. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. That is to me yeah, the, and, just simply how snooty they've made Thranduil in right, the second exactly. film is the thing and, that argues and, to be most against the purely humanitarian angle. Yeah. And especially, right. and especially add to that how, um, 
uh, how ornery uh, they've made Bard. Yes. Yes. If, if Thranduil is if Thranduil is is um, snooty, um, Bard Bard the character the, the the Bard they've given us is it seems like the sort of guy that's not going to tolerate it. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. No. I mean, I can see. Bard and the Elven King were pretty much hand in glove in 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 the book. There does not seem to be any division between them. Right. Like once once right. the Elven King came to help and support Bard, you know the two of them were perfect chums from there on out. Um, I agree, Dave. I think we're going to see some uh, tension between them uh, in in film three. Um, oh, very different. Yeah, you're right because in the book he is humanitarian, and they do have actually quite a good. I mean, I, I think, don't they, from what I remember, is quite a good relationship with uh, Lake Town Men. It seems like it, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, this um, this all leads up to our riddle. We might as well bring in the riddle, because uh, we're already kind of... Uh, it's, it's what I want to move to talk about specifically next. Um, our riddle is, What stand will Legolas and Toriel take regarding the Siege of Erebor? Option A, and the main question is, is there going to be a divide? what, Or what is going to be the nature of a, of a divide, if there is one, between Legolas and Toriel and Thranduil? How are the major elven players going to fall out in the Siege of Erebor? Um, option A, they will both defy Thranduil. Option B, Legolas will support his father and Toriel will defy him. Option C, Toriel will support Thranduil and Legolas will defy him. Or D, both will actively support Thranduil. How do we think the elven camp, <laughs> thinking, not, you know, uh, hanging on to the rest of it, you know, we'll talk about Lake Town politics later, we'll talk about Bard's point of view, of course we'll talk about Thorin's point of view, all of those things are yet to come in future episodes. Thinking about just the elven perspective on things, what do we expect to see in that period leading up to the Battle of Five Armies? Um, you know, and, and, and to some extent, we can. I think we can sort of include the Lake Town period in this as well. Um, thinking about the interactions that Toriel and Legolas and Thranduil are going to have in Film Three, um, what do we? Um, what do we think? You know, by the way, I switched this around. You know, after we talked, and Stephen makes a good point, which is, if we if we go for a book answer with two completely characters that have no part of the book at all, <laughs> right. D, D would actually be A. I guess you're right. Actually, yeah. Let's let's switch that. In fact, let's switch Shall that right that? now. Yeah. Let's let's, okay, let let's switch that. that right now. That, that, Steve, right. that's that that is that is that is that is well caught. This is, of course, one of those which doesn't exactly have a book answer, rigorously <laughs> speaking. But, so um, while we talk, I'll, I'll switch that yeah, around. Yeah, very good. So, okay, so we'll say it again. Um, uh, let's see. Now, Sharon has a, qual- a, a clarifying question. Um, at the beginning of the siege, sustained throughout, can they have a shift of position? Um, uh well, I mean, we'll have to. We, you know, we can kind of decide where we think it falls out later on. But I mean. In the specifically, I'm thinking of the question of what they do. Um, it's obvious after at the end of film two, Smaug has left and the dwarves are still there in possession of the Lonely Mountain. So we're going. I mean, it, it seems quite inevitable that we're going to have the Thorin and the other dwarves walled up in the Lonely Mountain confronting the elves and uh, and and the men of Lake Town. That 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 seems that conflict seems inescapable, and I certainly hope it's inescapable uh, in film three. So the real question is: 
in the adi- in, in the question of what to do about Thorin and the dwarves, in the question of what to do about the treasure, where are they going to be? Maybe they, you know, maybe they change. But I'd say, you know, we'll, we'll sort of we'll we'll talk that over after the fact. Just the question is, are they going to at the end of the day? Are they going to toe the party line, Legolas and Torio, or are they going to stand up to Thranduil? Are they going to actually defy him? So we're talking about open defiance, not just standing around with a grumpy face while he does what he does, and like Legolas rolling his eyes and giving disapproving looks to his father behind his back. We're talking about open defiance, um, you know, like Toriel, uh, you know, going over and putting her arm around, you know, her 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 little love bunny and saying, I stand with the short people. Like that's what we're talking about. Uh defiance of Thranduil. Um opposition could be opposition. I mean if Legolas has heated exchanges with Thranduil, um it, you know, publicly and you know not just you know, I would say if if Thranduil and Legolas have a heart-to-heart in which Legolas says, this is really the wrong thing to do, and Thranduil says, uh, shut up, boy, and Legolas says, uh, I'm going to be really grumpy, uh, but I'll shut up, he's not defying him. Um, counseling his father to do something else in private is different, but I'm talking take a stand against him in public. That's what I mean by defy. Or what about uh, doing something covertly to undermine him? If he... If, say, Toriel and or Legolas leaves and goes off to do like a Robin Hood thing against Thranduil and doesn't come back, I would call that defiance. Like, they're acting in defiance of Thranduil. But if Legolas, like, sneaks out by night and... Uh, um, uh, and uh, and um, you know does something defiant, but then comes back and stands with his father, you know, in public. Then I, I would not call that defiance. I would call that subversion, but I wouldn't call it defiance. Um, ah, okay, all right, fine. Like fine. Lego sneaking off and going to Lake Town against his father's orders. Um, that is that wouldn't be defiance if we see him like sneaking in the back door before Thranduil is any the wiser. <laughs> like I. I in this context, so I wouldn't suppose, call that defiance. Suppose I believe that... Um, okay, hypothetical. Suppose that uh, Thranduil takes um, the dwarves in Lake Town hostage and uh, and then tries to use them in negotiation with Thorin, and Legolas and Toriel break them out late at night and then and, and help them escape... Uh, but then when they show up at the negotiations the next day, they're like, you know, you know, they're they're sitting there going rah rah go Thranduil, <laughs> and he has no idea that they broke him up. I mean, probably that's unlikely. Probably if they do that, they will end up getting caught and they'll be brought before him, and then they will turn to open defiance. But um, but all right, well actually, let's do that one first. Suppose they're brought before him, and they're not arguing vociferously with him, but they're just. You know, but they're also not apologizing and saying you're right. I shouldn't have broken the dwarves out. Is that open defiance? Yes, yes, okay. that clearly suppose, is. Suppose suppose they succeed in subverting him with uh, without his knowledge. What would we call that? <sighs> it's difficult. Let's, let's add another three or four answers. Yeah, really yeah. I, I think that's really the best option. If we have like. 
10 different possibilities so that we have every potential scenario have its own uh, different answer. I think that's really, that's really the best. Of the I think that the answer to that gets answered when the right just right answer gets decided on it. Yeah, I think we, we just sort of decide what the general uh, uh, sense of the film is. Um, one, one, one change, uh, Trish, that I would think we, we, we could do to, to, make, um, to make it seem a little clearer to people, maybe we also, in addition to switching D to A, maybe let's, let's, let's rephrase D a little bit um, so that it's not quite so binary. Um, um, have the now A answer B, um, neither one of them openly defy Thranduil. Have it be a negative. rather uh, That is, if our only two options are oh, okay. they either actively support him or they openly defy him, there's a lot of middle ground that yes. becomes a yeah. pretty uncertain. Let's turn all of the active support into... into don't openly defy. Yes. Yeah, don't openly defy. Yes. Yes. Either they openly defy him or not. I think that that'll simplify things a little bit. Yeah, that'll that eliminates the that eliminates the confusion. Oh yeah, but I, I actually confusion. think I do think still think <laughs> I think we should add a fifth answer that is the true book answer, which is neither Legolas nor Toriel will appear in the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. I think it, we should go. we should obviously do that. Um, yeah, probably in the opening series of the film, they'll just like roll some text that will tell us that Toriel and Legolas were killed off screen and not to expect to see them in the, in, in the film. I think that's probably the best yeah, move. Toriel was killed off screen and, um, and, uh, and, uh, Legolas, uh, got pulled into some other business. Right. He's not going to come back. He, he, he's, well, he, he went riding off and will next be seen at the council of Elrond. Thank you very much. <laughs> yes. He actually set out for the <laughs> Yes, he's just going on a roundabout trip. Uh, and since he has no bunny sled uh, or warg to ride upon, he's uh, going to take years to get there instead of moments. Um, okay, yeah, so if we... So they will openly defy or not openly defy Thranduil. Um, by the way, the a, a side question... Um, Actually, I like Yana's idea that Yana just chases Bolg throughout the entire movie. Like, you know, every 10, 15 minutes we switch back to a, 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 a little scene of, of uh, Lego still riding in pursuit, and then we just cut away from him, and then, you know, that's, that's pretty much it. He's never going to do anything. Um, they could include, like, a little a little sort of comedic jingle whenever they come on screen. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. And we'll just see them, Actually, like... You know, maybe... Like the Dudley Do-Right jingle. The Dudley Do-Right <laughs> yeah. song. Do either... Do you, have either of you guys ever watched Family Guy? No. Been a while. You know, the, you know the running gag of him, like, of, of, of Peter fighting with the chicken? Just, like, the extended fight scene <laughs> that they have that lasts, like, 10 minutes, 15 minutes? Just keeps going, and they traverse through all kinds of different locales and settings. I think that's what we'll get. Yeah, well, you know, it, it could just be, you know, like yeah, in in in, uh, in as other scenes are happening, we'll just like in the distance, in the background, see Legolas and Bolg, you know, riding across in various contexts. Could very well happen. Um, okay, quick question. Um, in connection with these things, do you think that? Toriel and or Legolas will be in Lake Town when Smaug- and will they be involved in the defense of Lake Town? Is it possible even that Toriel gets killed by in the in the destruction of Lake Town? That she doesn't even make it to the Battle of Five yeah, Armies? And I think definitely she'll be there when the dragon comes, I mean, for sure. She'd um, have to leave pretty darn quickly in order to miss it, it seems yeah, like. So yeah, what role question. is she going to play? She might get killed, you know, saving Keeley. Right. 
Exactly. That's kind of what we're leading up to, whether it's at Erebor or Lake Town. That Is it like possible that she and Keeley both die? I mean, you know, we're all oh, ready to kill off Feely and Keeley. I mean, you know, Tolkien fans are emotionally prepared for this. Um, so, uh, did Bofer, did Bofer and Owen die? They didn't, did they? In the nope. Book? No, no. In the book, it's just Thorin and Feely and Keeley who die. Um, okay. Of course, in the Rankin Bass film, it's like eight <laughs> of them, but uh, but <laughs> completely senselessly. Right. And we know that Jackson actually has, you know, tipped his cap to the Rankin Bass film before. So uh, you know, exactly. <laughs> um, uh, man, I'd have to watch it again. I don't remember offhand the list of because they name them the dwarves who are yeah, killed does, in the battle, thing, yeah. and I, I'm forgetting. I. I, I forget oh, great. You get to watch it again. Yeah, you go ahead and do that and let yeah. us know. Get okay. back to us on that. All right. <laughs> I'll try to report back. You know, watch the Rankin Bass again like I do every week, you know. But anyway, um, uh, so, so yeah, so it's conceivable. Say Torio and Keeley are both killed. You know, they're like having this touching, hand holding moment. You know, like maybe, maybe the answer to like. You know, do you think that she could love him is like the building bursting into flame and the two of them dying a painful, <laughs> horrible death. Um, you know, <laughs> that's conceivable. It's con- I mean, we, 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 we're all, I mean, let's face it, we're all expecting both of those characters to die in film three sooner or later. Um, so maybe what we get is Feely returning alive um, with Keely dead and that this, you know, this emotionally factors into Thorin's state, um, you know, during the final standoff and the final battle. I don't know. Personally, I don't find it very satisfying. I would expect a 100% survival rate of elves and dwarves in the attack on Lake Town. Yeah. Um, well, especially given that the dragon can't kill him at Erebor. I mean... <laughs> right. You know. Right. You had a far better chance there. Um, yeah. It just I, I think speaking. we're going to have a touching battlefield moment with, with Keeley and Tariel. Yeah, um, I still think we're we're we're, we're going to have more touching moments. So I, I'm betting they're going to end up at the battle. Well, I mean, they, we we've all been speculating for a while that um, you know the immediate future destiny of Feely, Keeley, Owen, and Bofer, and presumably Toriel as well, um, is going to be breaking Bart out of prison. Right. Um, because somebody's got to get Bart out of jail so he can uh, and and expediently uh, so right. that he can get up and shoot the dragon. Um, I. So, you know, there's that. Um, what role they actually could play, if any, in the actual fight against the dragon. I don't even know how that's going to happen. I mean, we'll talk about this later. We'll talk about um, uh, Smaug at Lake Town in more detail later on. Yeah. But um, uh, it's hard for me to imagine Legolas there, because, again, he was, he was last seen, you know, all jokes aside, he was last seen riding quickly in the opposite direction as Smaug is flying towards Lake Town. I can't imagine he's involved. But now, again, Legolas is going to hear about this, right? You know, this might interfere with Legolas's Paul Revering if he hears that, like, the dragon attacked oh, Lake Town yeah. m- like minutes after he left uh, and that Toriel was there. Um, this is presumably... Yeah, the, here's, a, here's a really obscure literary... Uh, parallel, like the Highwaymen. <laughs> you are all over the cross references am, today. Am Trish. I showing off now? <laughs> yes. <laughs> but Corey knows what I. What yeah, about. yeah. You know, I, I, I um, yeah. I, hey, you know that could be actually maybe maybe Legolas goes, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, meets up with some of the other elves and and brings them to Lake Town you know, to like 
because he knows Toriel's there, and he's going to go back, and so Thranduil's going to accompany him in arms um, if he's going to insist on going back into the war zone. I don't know. But, um... So Legolas is probably not going to be involved. I suspect Toriel's not going to die. Um, but but if if we're right about this, if we're right about Toriel and Kiwi and Fiwi and Owen and Bofur's role being to break Bard out of prison and presumably help him to get up uh, to the windless... Uh, excuse me, the... What are we calling it? <laughs> ballista? Well, we're not calling it a ballista. What no, we're it? not? What's the windless? word... Yeah, windless. They did call it a windless, right? Did uh, they call it a windless? Yeah, to get up to the windless, which is which is correct. Which is weird for me because being a sailor, a windless is what I use to pull my anchor out of the water. So right, you know. which is very similar. It's the crank mechanism thing. That's yeah, not it's the, the whole. It's yeah. the, that's why yeah. the windless was associated with with crossbows, especially large ones. But anyway, yeah. So um, uh, anyway, so if he's going to get up to the windless and uh, and shoot the dragon, they're going to be his allies. They're going to be fighting with him in. And 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 right. on his behalf, I mean, I I presume that we're going to get not only them um, breaking him out of prison, but probably you know fighting a rearguard action while he you know like defending the base of the tower while he goes up and shoots the dragon. Uh, I, this is what I'm picturing anyway going on. What happens after that? So then, if they escape and Bart escapes, there they are. You know, the allies who have just fought together. You know, so there's like Bard Toriel. Fiwi and Kiwi high-fiving each other on the shores of the lake um, with the dragon dead, and then they go from there to the Siege of the Lonely Mountain? Well, you know, we'll, we'll, I mean, we could do a similar riddle with regard to how the dwarves you know, yeah. behave toward Thorin. Exactly. Because, yeah, it seems to me like the only logical thing is they're going to be accompanying the men and the elves to the mountain. Yeah, I, or at the Perhaps. very least, even if they're not there with them physically... Um, you know, they're they're going to have. I mean, you know, the relationship between Fiwi and Kiwi and Bard, um, yeah. as between Toriel and Bard, is presumably going to be significantly influenced by this, even if they do leave and join up with Thorin afterwards. Well, here's another one: Thranduil, who doesn't have any warm feelings for the dwarves, may take them as hostages and use them right when he gets to Erebor. I think I've mentioned yep. that before. Yep, the Fiwi and Kiwi as hostages. Uh, uh, plan is certainly something that's been on the table for a while. It's one, one um, you know, clear use that they could be put to, um, being all conveniently there in Lake Town and all. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and that would certainly fit more in with the, um, um, with the. Sharon's, with Sharon's the, come up with a good idea. Tariel doesn't die in the Battle of Five as, as a jerk, not a humanitarian um, right, view of right. things. Um, Sharon says that uh, Tauriel doesn't die in the Battle of Five Armies, and she goes on a journey to to return Keeley's Runerock to his mother. So are you guys any closer to answers to the riddle? No. Can you hear me? Oh, sorry, I can hear you now. Okay. Sorry. Yeah, Sharon Sharon Hoff was saying Tauriel doesn't die in Battle of Five She goes on a journey to return Keeley's Runerock to his mother, takes up with another dwarf and is never heard from again. And I'm bringing that up to stall because I have no idea what my answer is. I help create these riddles. I should create riddles that I can answer. I mean, jeez. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, hey, you know, maybe maybe Kiwi and Toriel just, like, retire. You know, Kiwi abdicates and, and uh, the two of them go off and, and uh, you know, live happily ever after somewhere. Could totally I happen. Think- Okay, I'm going to step out here, and I'm going to go with D, 
Okay. And the reason I'm going to go with D is, think, first of all, Tariel's kind of been working on Legolas, right? So she's been sort of changing his mind. The other thing is, is we do eventually need to get to a place where Thranduil is, in fact, uh, in charity toward, you know, other people besides his people. Um, so I think his son openly defying him, and Tariel, of course, too, will be a big thing for him. And it'll cause, that may be what triggers his character arc. Right now, here's another curveball, though. Oh shoot! Okay, how, well, I'm, not, I'm not in stone yet. So. <laughs> how consistent do we th- suspect Peter Jackson is going to try to be between Legolas at the end of the third film and Legolas at the beginning of the Council of Elrond? Because we remember how like anti-dwarf he was. Oh yeah, he was anti-dwarf. So he? do we have him? That's so right. so here's another possibility. Legolas comes back, you know, he, whether he whether or not he's Paul Revering, he comes back uh, to find Toriel and and see if she's safe, and finds that she's not only safe, she's shacked up with this dwarf, and so he like gets all mad and uh, and like basically essentially goes over to his dad's side. Um, and she is defiant That's against Tor- against right. Thranduil, and he's all like, um, you know... Uh, I hate dwarves again. I hate dwarves again, uh, and I think, like, my only complaint with my father's policy is that he is insufficiently intolerant of dwarves, uh, for my right. tastes now. Um, so, And especially if Tauriel ends up getting killed because she's defending Keeley, or, you know, because she's fighting to save a dwarf of some sort. I mean, that yeah, exactly. I mean, it's possible to do this in a way that makes like, I mean, you know, the, of course, one of the difficult pressures is it's going to be, it's going to be hard to carry this story off in a way that makes Legolas look awful. I mean, you know, for him just to look like a complete jerk is, is uh, that's, it's hard to imagine um, pulling that off. But, well, I think the one way they could do it, I think the one way they could explain his hatred of dwarves without making him look like a complete jerk is his heartbreak over her death. Right. Right. You know, I mean, I, I agree. And then then when we see Fellowship of the Ring, then we kind of have that backstory. It's so funny. This is kind of going the same way that you talk about Unfinished Tales going, isn't it? Right. <laughs> it's like the same kind of chronology of writing the stuff. Right, um, exactly. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. Okay, so I'm stepping back for a moment, and I'm going to mull. <laughs> We're just about out of time. Dave, what do you think? Uh-oh, uh-oh. <sighs> Well, he's playing with us. He's not giving us. I think it's virtually guaranteed that Tariel is going to openly defy him at some point. Yeah, I think C with Legolas defying Thranduil and Tariel not defying him him. seems to me that's most unlikely. It's hard to imagine that happening. Um, Yeah, I think it's got to be B or D. I'm going with D. Okay, both of them. I, I, I think. I think. I think by the time we reach that point, I think the, the character arc... So, so Toriel seems virtually guaranteed to defy him, and there's going to be so many opportunities yeah. along the way. Um, and I think that the character arc that we see Legolas on, um, he, he, he's already disobeyed Thranduil's order to, to lock the doors and, and um, stay within the bounds, unless there's an off-screen scene that we haven't seen where... He goes and tells Thranduil, uh, by the way, Toriel left. Uh, despite the fact that you closed our borders, Toriel left, and Thranduil says, all right, well, go get her. Right. Um, no, yeah, I, I, can't, which, I don't think he would do seems, that. Yeah, yeah which, which doesn't, seem, doesn't seem likely. So 
Um, I feel like the character arc he's on, he's already kind of disobeyed Thranduil, so it, it, I think by the time we reach the siege, that, that point in the film, which is going to be probably a third to a halfway through this film, I imagine the smog attack is going to be a nice lengthy one. Right. Um, I, I think by that time, his character arc is going to have led him into to at least, rela- if not vociferous, certainly um, quiet... Uh, um, quiet uh, um, uh, sort of consistent defiance uh, or disobedience of Thranduil. Maybe he won't argue with him in front of everyone, but um, when brought before Thranduil to account for some attempt at subversive action, he will not. He will be unapologetic. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm going with D. Okay. Okay. You you want me to step forward or are you going to go? Well, you go ahead. Oh no, that's okay. You go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, you have given me pause to consider, and I could. The, this is see, this is my problem. I always get way too cerebral about this stuff when when thinking about what Jackson's going to do. Um, you know, the thing is, I I, I want to believe that he's going to remain. You know, he's going to. It's going to be believable again when we see the Fellowship of the Ring after we see this movie. That yeah. Legolas has the reaction that he does. Um, I just have my, if nothing else, I have faith in Philippa that she would say, you know, we really need to do this. So I'm thinking that though he, though he toys with, you know, he listens to Tauriel and he toys with the idea that maybe she's right and maybe his father could be wrong. When the chips are down and it's time to do battle or it's time to, you know, basically kind of go to war, he sides with his father. So I'm going to go with me. Okay, okay. I am strongly tempted by B, but I think I'm going to go with D also. I think that he's going to end up... I think there's going to be tension there. I think that we are going to end up with, like, a sad and embittered Legolas at the end. But I think that that can be done in the context of his... uh, I, I do, Dave... At the end of the day, I, I was thinking the same thing as you. The character arc of Legolas seems to be towards like that that conversation, which was covered so mu- so heavily in the trailers um, of uh, of the desolation of Smaug. You know, the whole "this is our fight" conversation um, mm-hmm. uh, seems to be like a turning point for Legolas when he was coming in entrenched in his father's policies and she is changing his mind and the trip into Lake Town seems to have solidified the changing of his mind and whatever he goes on to discover in pursuit of Bolg is likely to continue that. Um, so I would suspect that he's going to end up uh, essentially on Toriel's side, which is going to be against Thranduil, but... Um, but that still, he's gonna, he's still gonna end up after her death, which I do suspect is probably gonna come later in the film, um, rather than earlier. Uh, I think he's gonna end up. Do um, so you think he'll tur- he'll he'll reverse himself and go back well, not, to hating? Dwarves. Not reverse himself. I, guess, I, don't, I don't think he has to support his father in order to end up hating dwarves. Um, you know, because because the issue is not that simple. You know, the issue is right. not, ju- especially since in pursuit of Bolg what he's going to be coming up against is like the big, huge, you know, uh, the big, huge tertium quid in the, in the film Hobbit story. That is the necromancer and the evil encroaching on the world. Um, you know, he can, he can support Toriel in saying, we need to take action here. We need to have a different, we, we need to not just be snooty and isolationists. 
um, and thus be defying his father without having to be all warm and cuddly about dwarves. So, uh, can I say, come on, commit, people? This is this is the, only thirty four percent of people have voted. If, Vote. If people Vote. haven't paid attention, the poll is up. So yeah, the if poll you're is away up. Away from your screen, come over here and yeah, vote. yeah, vote on it. It's it's this is not binding. We're not gonna we're not gonna you know take. I don't even know if we can. I don't even think we have the data no, of who's don't. voted for what. So you're not you're not committed here. Uh, this is just for fun. Um, you know, you'll be submitting your official vote. Where later are you on. today? Where are yeah, you today? Yes, you as today? I told what do you Pete, think? As I told Pete, we all, including the hosts, have the option of changing our answers before the final submission. That's right. That's right. And I said, no one will even know what it is that you said here. So, That's okay, right. good. All right, we're up to oh, 66%. Oh, yeah, we're getting there now. Good, good. Okay, and are we still... I do feel, I do feel happy that my horse is winning so Your far. Your horse is winning. We have a majority of people supporting B so far. Uh, ze- I don't think that's because I'm particularly silver-tongued, but... <laughs> 0% on C, uh, which is not surprising. <laughs> Yeah, 0% on C. Really We've got the, some really outside-the-box thinkers with A, 6%. That's awesome. Yeah, neither openly defies. You know, actually, I, I, I certainly agree. I'm, I'm very willing to agree with the percentages here that that's the third most likely option. Um, you know, because I could see I could see Toriel basically being a covert agent and not openly defying him. Um, it's hard for me to imagine Toriel being like... I've decided upon like mature consideration that I am one hundred percent beside every behind everything that Thranduil says and thinks. Like that's a little hard for me to imagine, but um, uh, but to say that uh, she's going to be a purely covert agent and never openly defy him—that seems possible. Eighty-two percent voted. I okay. just am amazed we don't we that's don't better. get a hundred percent. It's really better. amazing. Um, but I do want to close so I can show people the results. Do we want to close yet? Or sure. Wait yeah. Yeah. And if I put money on this, I would have. I would be a millionaire. <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> Here we are. Yeah. Okay. So it's kind of a one-third, two-thirds split almost with the pretty close being, with uh, a few, the, with a few the rebellious minority and you know Bravo for the, the rebellious minority. Yep. Yep. Cool. Cool. Excellent. Well, that's good. So um, our next episode... Wait, what is our next episode going to be? I've, I've forgotten what our next episode is. Hold on. I will let you know as you come up with some filler to discuss. While well, I'm in the this. meantime, <laughs> let me say we talked, We spent a while, an, an, an unexpected to me amount of time at the beginning, talking about the Unfinished Tales class. So I should mention uh, that in our Unfinished Tales class, we are doing the Hunt for the Ring and the Battle at the Fords of Eisen. Uh, next week, so we're doing uh, we're, we're fantastic chapters. Of yes. That book. Oh, and he did uh-huh. Quest of Ere- anybody not hasn't listened Quest of Erebor. Yeah, he did on Tuesday it was awesome. That was really fun. Yeah, I've been waiting yeah. to do be, because yeah. of years of doing Riddles in the Dark. Now I've been I've been like waiting for the Quest of Erebor chapter for like a long time. Oh man, yeah. The, the the Hunt for the Ring chapter is like one of my favorite things. Oh yeah. I, actually, you know, I, to be honest with you. There's so many things in the uh, in the unfinished tales that, at least upon my first read of it, on my discovery on it, I just I, I I guess it's it's not really my favorite stuff that he's written because because the reason I like it so much is that I love the other things that Tolkien right. wrote right. and it sort of mentally psychologically prepared me for it. But just the the amount of joy that you get for from reading some of these various chapters of the unfinished tales that either 
fill in some gaps of things that you were wondering about. Like the first time that you read The Hunt for the Ring, you're like, oh, that's huh, that's really cool. I didn't even yeah. thought about that. You right. see the, yeah. the, the, the Nazgul interacting with Saruman and stuff, and you're like, oh, that's really, I always wondered what was going on here, and here it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Or things that they give you a completely different perspective on a story you've already read, like the, the chapter on Tour is just such a delightfully different presentation of of um, not just that story, but just of like the power dynamics between the Valar and stuff. And then the the um, the Aldarian and Arendis chapter is just like it's just it's just completely different. Yes. Uh, you know, actually, Corey, as I was as I was listening to that the second or third time through, or whenever I ever listen to it again, I was thinking it j- complete that that chapter completely jibes with my idea for a. Uh, HBO Game of Thrones style uh, <laughs> Numenor series, yeah, yeah, yeah. I reading that chapter, I was like, I just ate up. I was like, aha, see, it would work really well. <laughs> so you got the relationship drama and everything. It's yeah, all set. yeah, and also they, and it gives you, and it, and it, and it kind of opens the door to, it opens the door to a more complex, like slightly more complex picture of of um, of morality and good and evil than than people. Than people ascribe to Tolkien. Yep. Totally unfairly, of course. Uh, totally unfairly. But no, you're right. Exactly. But, no, it's very interesting that way. But far too, you know. But the thing is, with um, with uh, I, you know, because Silmarillion's filled with lots of really bad good guys, and there, I guess, there aren't any really good bad guys. But but Lord of the Rings, we get a picture where where we get we get a crisis moment, right? Where like it's pretty clear what needs to be done. We got to fight Sauron. There's like there's just no hope you know, like there's no time to sit and dither about is it morally justified to go to war and what do we have and it's like no he's on the doorstep it's too late we got to fight so there, so so things become a little more a little more black and white a little more clear but but um, but the, the 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 story that we get in Aldarian Arendis is a lot more you know it's kind of like uh, you know, what I mean, the, mm-hmm. the, it's a little more complicated because it's because the the real threat is so far off. Yes, and and also because also because we know where this ends up leading. Right. Um, exactly. We know very well that that uh, you know in the moment it seems like the right thing to do to to prepare to fight, and yet we know exactly we know that his his foreboding is correct. Yes. It's going to end up that we they are going to turn into the very thing they're trying to fight. Exactly. Exactly. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's, 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 you can see, uh, Tolkien really, um, I, I find it fascinating the way that he works. So I mean, one impulse could be, um, for him to be, you know, as he goes back to these stories later on to be kind of glamorizing them more. I mean, Numenor has such a, um, a glamor about it, you know, in, from the Lord of the Rings point of view, um, thinking of you know the way that Faramir talks about it, and, and just it, it's it's it would be easy to go back and be like, I'm going to tell a tale of Numenor, and it's going to be like the glory and the wonder of Numenor, and instead we get like the incredibly complex moral ambiguity of Numenor, and that's and that's it's kind of an unexpected, it's a really rich and unexpected thing. Um, 
and it's it's yeah it's it's really cool. So anyway, so we're going to be finishing the third age uh, this coming week. Uh, though if you've been if you have been following along with the classes, I would remind people we have a change in schedule next week. Normally they're on Tuesdays. This week it's going to be next Friday. So it's going to be next Friday night, uh, the twenty eighth, um, at nine thirty p.m. Eastern time instead of uh, instead of the Tuesday because uh, I'm going to be on the road. But uh, but we'll still have class, um, just on a different day. So, yes, the Hunt for the Ring uh, and uh, uh, and the uh, the Battle of the Fords of Eyes, and be prepared to talk about Gandalf and Saruman. I'm so excited to talk about Gandalf and Saruman from the Hunt for the Ring. Uh, but anyway, um, so that's my one announcement. And then next week, as I uh, think I'm remembering now, Trish, we're talking about the beginning oh, of the film, right? Yes, we're going to start our... our um chronological working through the story so we're starting about at the beginning with the beginning of the film okay yeah. so we'll be talking about the film's opening uh um next week and and and, and yeah that the, the beginning of the consideration of the the sort of the plot arc the internal plot right. arc of film three um right. for for next time so that's where it's what we have coming up another fabulous day thanks everybody for coming it was really fun yeah yeah thanks to everybody who 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 joined in here today and thanks you guys for joining me and uh as always i will say thank you for listening and godspeed